Welcome to Get Better at Garbage, the official podcast of Recycle Smart, Canada's fastest growing recycling technology company. In every episode, we talk tech, innovation, and inside secrets with interesting people doing interesting things from around the world. Welcome to this episode of Get Better at Garbage. It's been a little while, but we're back on the air, and today we've got a really interesting guest. I'd like to welcome to the show, Kristen Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Radical Plastics. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Great. Thank you so much, Colin. So um, today we're going to be talking about plastics and how we can make plastics less of an environmental burden. Um, But before we dive into everything about plastics and petrochemicals, maybe just tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, and your career history prior to Radical Plastics, because I think you were involved in the plastic industry in a few different ways prior to this. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up just north of Boston, went to UMass, uh, which has a specialized program in plastics engineering, UMass Lowell. And I spent the first half of my career with ExxonMobil. You might have heard of them, little company. Um, <laughs> they have a uh, plastic. They had a plastic films division. So they were um, specifically in oriented polypropylene films. So that's a typical film you would see for a potato chip bag or a bottle label or a candy bar packaging. Um, so I really grew up in the packaging space, and I got to see the sheer volume of material that we were sending out into the world. Um, so, um, I actually took about three years off and had three kids in three years. And when I went back to work, I didn't want to go back to work for big oil. So uh, I actually found this bioplastics company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's a offshoot of MIT. Uh, and that's where Yelena and I met around 2006. And we worked there together for about seven years, trying to commercialize a bio-based biodegradable plastic, which we thought was just awesome. Um, but it was really, really challenging. We found out all of the difficulties with bioplastics. You know, they're they're really hard to process. They really have uh, different properties than what we're used to with conventional plastics, and they're much, much more expensive. So uh, we wound that company, the plastic side of the company, down around 2013 because we really couldn't get the market traction that we needed to sustain the business. Uh, and then I went to Sabic, which is the old GE Plastics, and then I spent two years at Huntsman Corporation. So I really been all over the plastics industry from big giant companies to small startups. Um, but the second half of my career has really been focused on, you know, what can we do about this plastic pollution problem? How can we come up with better solutions? So plastics have been in the news, I think more probably in the last two years than the last 20 years in terms of plastic yeah. pollution and so much plastic. And so what's, what's kind of the current state of the plastic production industry? Are we making more plastic than ever, or is that just because we have more of a, a lens on it now, or what's kind of happening in the in the plastic production world? Yeah, both actually. Um, actually, around 50% of all the plastics that have ever been made have been made in the last 15 years. So it's a 600 billion US dollar industry right now, and it's growing at three to three and a half percent a year. Uh, we're making around 800 billion pounds of this stuff every year. And around a third of that goes toward packaging and short-term use applications. Um, you know, so plastics have become so integral and ubiquitous in our daily lives because they have such great properties. They're so economical. They're wonderful for food storage and transportation. They have so many great applications. Um, you know, but we've really designed all of these plastics to be super durable which doesn't make sense a lot of the time. Um, If you've ever gone to the grocery store and bought a loaf of bread, what's the first thing you do? You look at the expiration date and it's about a week or a week and a half. And yet we're packaging that loaf of bread in something that if it escaped into the environment would last for decades, if if not hundreds of years. 
So it just doesn't make any sense. But the plastics industry, you know, is still very strong, um, especially in the past year with COVID. Um, plastic bags have increased since people can't use reusable bags in many cases. And also most of the PPE products that have been really just skyrocketing um, have been made with plastics. So it's really a growing industry. I was actually in a gas station uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and I went to the coffee station and, and, and for obviously for COVID-19 sanitary reasons, now every single plastic fork and coffee stir stick on the, uh, you know, the condiment aisle was wrapped in plastic. And I was just yeah. kind of cringed as an environmentalist. I was like, oh my, and the guy at the counter said, well, we have to head office, you know, we can't have this stuff sitting out there because it could be contaminated. And I thought, Right. Yeah, a lot more plastic. And like you said, plastic masks, or, or mm -hmm. at least masks with plastic uh, components in them, which almost all of them do at this point, have really uh, have taken off. So um, what what is radical plastics? If, if I ran at you at the grocery store or at a cocktail party and asked <laughs> you kind of what is radical plastics, what's the elevator pitch in terms of what are you doing in the plastic industry? Sure. Um, at Radical Plastics, again, we're industry veterans but we've developed a patented catalyst that we can blend with conventional plastics at the manufacturing stage that renders them biodegradable in case they end up in the environment. So that's kind of always been the holy grail, right? Something that looks and acts like plastic, it's still economical, it's still versatile, but it doesn't pollute the environment you know, at the end of life. Um, so that's really our goal is to redesign plastics. So we've been all grown up with that mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle which are absolutely fantastic goals and we need to do that. But we're also gonna add a fourth R and that's redesign. We need to redesign these materials from scratch so that we can enjoy their amazing properties without polluting the planet long-term. So this approach is different than say a bioplastics company, which you mm -hmm. mentioned you were you're, you're involved in before in your career and, and it's a tough market and often yeah. with bioplastics too, it generates some unintended consequences because those bioplastics end up in the regular plastic recycling stream and yes. people are confused. Are they, com are they compostable? Are they biodegradable? And the compost facilities, you know, sometimes are pulling their hair out. So right. is the difference here is that if this isn't a new bioplastic, you're saying this is an additive that we can add to plastic that's already being produced to change the characteristics of it. So it, it's exactly. not a new a new plastic resin that's being produced or, or anything like that. Right, right. And, and you bring up a few good points. First of all, a huge portion of the bioplastics that are out there are not actually biodegradable. They're industrially compostable. So you need to collect them and bring them to an industrial composter for them to biodegrade. And quite frankly, um, you know, the infrastructure is really lacking for that. It's fine if you have a closed loop system like a hospital or university where those components are actually being collected and industrially composted. But most times they're just going into the landfill. Um, so they're really not a great solution. And there are other biodegradable plastics out there, some of them made from starch that are truly biodegradable if they end up in the environment, but their properties are really quite poor. They're just, they don't replicate the same properties as conventional plastics. They don't have the barrier properties to be used in food packaging in most cases. Uh, and they just can't replace, they're not a drop in replacement for conventional plastics. So we wanted to create something that was made from conventional plastics. And we add about one half to 1% of this patented catalyst into regular plastics to create something that is really a drop in replacement um, looks the same, performs the same, can still be recycled, but at the end of the day, if it does leak into the environment, it won't last forever. So can you explain how this technology works, just maybe at the layperson level, because we're obviously not all petrochemical engineers, but yeah, kind of <laughs> at a high level, 
You've yep. got this existing plastic that is has a you know a polymer chain uh, characteristic to it, and then you're putting something into the, at the resin level, or where does this come into the production process? Really good question. Yeah, it is at the resin level. So uh, my co-founder Yelena Khan um, found this really unique natural mineral material, and it's actually a waste product right now from the mining industry, and it's just a fine mineral powder that's left over after they mine all of the valuable stuff. Uh, and there's a third-party company who was taking this product and trying to find other applications for it. So they were selling it into agriculture to make soils healthier because it's a really great blend of, of transition metals and alkaline, alkaline earth metals. It's very healthy for the soil. But she looked at this chemistry and said, oh, this is something I can use to oxidize polyethylene and polypropylene. Um, so that's really the difference. Again, it's not a bioplastic. We're taking this unique catalyst system and we're adding it around one half to 1% in conventional plastics. Um, again, so that really means that they can be a drop in replacement. They can still be economical, uh, but at the end of the day, they won't persist in the environment like conventional plastics do. And can this go into any type of plastic? Like if we look at the plastic numbering scheme, like polypropylene, HDPE, or is there a particular plastic type that, that it needs right. to be added to, or maybe best application? Very good, very good question. So in general, polymers degrade by two mechanisms, either through oxidation or hydrolysis. The, um, the bulk of the plastic pollution problem is this family of plastics called polyolefins, and that includes polyethylene and polypropylene. And that makes up around 55% of the trash that's out there. Um, and those polymers are degradable by oxidation. And oxidation, fortunately, can be accelerated at ambient conditions using, using catalysts. There are materials out there like polyester, PET, you know, PET bottles that only degrade through hydrolysis. And hydrolysis cannot be accelerated at ambient conditions. That's why they, these new bioplastics that are polyester-based need to go to industrial composting, high temperature composting in order to degrade. So Yelena said, you know, if we really want to tackle the plastics pollution problem, we need to go to where, you know, most of these plastics are, which is the addition, what they call the addition-based polymers that can be degraded by oxidation. So the polyolefins, polyethylene and polypropylene can be um, degraded in this manner, but it could also be used for styrenes, acrylics, potentially vinyls, um, a whole host of plastics that are out there, just not the PET family of, or the polyester family of plastics. And so once this, uh, basically once this process is complete, what are you left with? Like, does it just disappear or is there some kind of residue yeah. left behind? No, that's an excellent question. Um, so if this material ends up in the environment, it goes through a conventional two-stage degradation process. In the first stage, the heat and UV and oxygen that's out in the environment initiates our catalyst. And the catalyst turns this polymer into something that is a biodegradable plastic. So it reduces the, those long molecular chains reduces those chains down to very, very small um, oligomers, what they call oligomers. And it also changes the chemistry of the plastic. So it's no longer a hydrophobic um, polyolefin type material. It looks more like the bio-based biodegradable polyesters actually that are out there. So that's really the first stage, this abiotic stage where the catalyst turns the polyethylene or polypropylene into something that is a biodegradable plastic. And then the second stage is the biotic stage where the microbes that live in the environment, whether it's in the soil or in rivers or in oceans, see this as a food source and they can metabolize it, turning it into biomass, CO2 and water. 
Um, so it's really harmless. And uh, we're undergoing some extensive testing right now in Europe at two different certified labs in Europe to prove that not only does it um, go away, quote unquote, but it does not produce microplastics. It is actually being consumed and metabolized by the microbes. And that at the end of the day, there's no ecotoxicity concerns after it degrades. So uh, we're, we're making sure that, you know, what we see at bench scale and pilot scale actually is what happens in the environment if it's released into the environment. So silly question, but I saw the uh, trials with the uh, film, the agricultural film. Yeah. How do you keep it from just biodegrading overnight? Like I'm, I'm a farmer, I put this out and the next day I come back and it's all gone. Right. And I'm like, well, that was great. <laughs> so what we do- <laughs> Which is what it's supposed to do, but not very useful. Yeah, I know, exactly. Um, so basically we're buying, um, we're doing all the formulating for these unique grades that are designed for these soil degradable mulch films. And I should mention right now, the mulch film market's a $4 billion market, it's huge. And 99% of that is non-degradable polyethylene. So at the end of the season, the farmers have to pay to have all of this film collected and disposed of, which is not only expensive and time consuming, uh, but you know if they're incinerating it, which is frequently the case, it obviously creates CO2 emissions. So with our film, at the end of the growing season, they can just till this biodegradable film into the soil and it will be gone by the next growing season. Um, so the way that we formulate these materials is we formulate it to the application. Right now we're designing mulch films that last around four to six months outdoors. Uh, so we include not only our catalyst in that formulation, but inhibitors. So we include specific inhibitors that will stave off that degradation reaction until we want it to start. Once that inhibitor is used up, then the catalyst can kick in. So we can kind of fine tune the rate of degradation and basically the service life of the material. So that might be different for a packaging film, for example, we might want it to last a year before it starts to degrade, but we can kind of dial that in through the amount and type of catalyst and inhibitors that we include. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, you can slow down or speed up, well, I guess less, less mean speed in this case, and, and depending on the use case of, of whatever it is. Right. Um, so what is the ideal client and are there any barriers? Because this sounds great. It's like, well, why isn't everyone one clamoring, you know, coming to your doorstep saying, give us this now, we need to solve this plastic problem. So what are the barriers for really getting this out there? Right, right. Um, well, whenever anyone hears about a biodegradable plastic, they say, oh, you have to go to packaging and bags. That's the big problem. And that is a huge part of the problem. But uh, the issue with packaging and bags is, first of all, it's very complex. They're multi-layer structures, a lot of requ you know, technical requirements. Um, it's very, very difficult, these packaging applications. But also in packaging, there's no clear standard that everyone agrees on. If you can pass this, you are proven to be biodegradable and safe in the environment. Um, whereas in agriculture, we, we chose to go to agriculture first, because uh, first of all, we're offering a functional advantage in this product. So, you know, we can support that price point because we're saving the farmer money, but also there's a clear standard that we can pass that proves that it is biodegradable and safe. So that's what we're trying to do now is go through that testing, which can take a year or more uh, to prove that it's biodegradable and safe. Um, so we will be selling a drop in replacement resin to people who are already making this mulch film. Uh, Long-term, we can sell that resin, we can different formulations of that resin to someone who's making bags or someone who's making packaging or someone who's making stretch wrap. Um, you know, really we're gonna be a resin supplier to the plastics industry, to the people who are already making those products, but then they can offer a better solution. 
Um, what's interesting though, is this technology could be backed up into the resin manufacturer. So someone like a Dow or Exxon Mobil, some of these big resin guys could be making durable polyethylene on one line and biodegradable polyethylene on the next line for short-term use applications. That's really kind of our vision because that's the fastest way to proliferate the technology and start, start solving the problem. Yeah, and they already have the distribution networks and the manufacturing relationships. So it's really, you know, put it in at the source and then it can be distributed instead of trying to work your way up. It's interesting. We were talking to a Canadian company, uh, Green Mantra Technologies, who's also, a, you know, producing a resin from recycled uh, plastic. And, and they're really saying the same thing is like, yeah, being green and recycled is a great selling tool. But really, if you want to compete, you have to have a competitive advantage. And so in your case, in agricultural film, the competitive advantage is you can just, you can till this in at the end of the year. You don't have to collect yeah. it and dispose of it and all that kind of thing. So it's kind of like being green is not enough. It's got to also be competitive in terms of, you know, why is this a superior product than what I'm currently using? Because right. I think a lot of people, they won't switch just because of the green aspect, or if the green aspect is 25% more expensive, then it's going to yeah. be a hard sell. Yeah. yeah, we really saw agriculture as literally the low hanging fruit. Um, you know, somewhere where we were providing a functional advantage and it was a really strong value proposition. Um, but as we scale, you know, we'll be able to be price competitive with conventional pol polymers. So we'll be able to go into those really uh, price competitive applications like packaging. That was a good pun there. Agriculture is the low hanging fruit. Well done. <laughs> um, <laughs> so has it been smooth sailing or has there been some technical issues that have really you guys have really had to uh, work hard to overcome or was this something that kind of was an aha moment and that's been pretty smooth ever since? Um, you know, no, we, we definitely hit some bumps in the road. Uh, you know, trying to raise our first fund was challenging just because we'd never done it before. We've both been in the plastics industry for 25 years and we've never had to go out there and be founders and pitch our ideas to investors. So learning that whole process, you know, getting a term sheet in hand, that, that was really kind of exciting and interesting. We had a lot of learning to do there. Uh, and then we were really rolling. We we went full time in this job about 18 months ago, so August of 2019. Uh, and we were rolling. We were doing our testing, and we were ready to go. And then COVID hit around a year ago, as you know. And all of these labs we had planned to work with um, to do all of this testing shut down. So we really had to scramble and find alternate places to test the material. Uh, so we got a little creative. Um, we were able to make um, several dozen rolls of film last year around this time, and we tested it in seven different locations across the U.S., from California to Florida to Maine to New York. Um, so we got, you know, really a good sample of, of different test environments and crops done last year, and we're doing much larger scale testing this year, really across the country. But COVID did, did slow us down a little bit. We were supposed to start our lab testing in March. Um, of last year, and we weren't able to start until late October. So that really did slow us down. But you know, we're we're back on track right now. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, companies, obviously, COVID really uh, derailed things big time. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been definitely uh, definitely a tough year, especially if you're trying to do something new. Because I think a lot of people just kind of put their heads down and said, "Nothing new, just survive." And so when you're trying through, to do, let me get through this. Yeah. But I think they, they, COVID also brought to light, you know, not only the problem of plastic pollution because people are seeing masks and gloves and things like that out on the environment, but also the benefits of plastic and the fact that they're not going away. You know, they are such useful materials. They bring so much value in terms of safety and health and all of that. They're gonna keep making plastics. So let's just be smarter about how we do that. 
Definitely. Um, so as we get towards the end here, who is someone that's really inspired you on your journey um, along to from, I guess, from Exxon to now being on the good side of the fence? You know, joining the <laughs> joining the good fight, so to speak. Yeah. I get to wear a white hat, you know. I'm kind of excited. That's um, right. Yeah, you're like, I've changed teams. Don't, yeah. don't humanize me. <laughs> but you know, I think to change things, you really have to work from inside the industry. You know, I tried it from outside the industry, banging on the door, and you know, we really didn't get market traction for a lot of reasons. So let's work from within the industry and make a win-win situation for everyone, you know, that can really make a, a difference. It's a huge problem. And there's not going to be a silver bullet. You know, we're going to have to take a buckshot approach here. And there's going to be a lot of a lot of solutions working together to tackle this problem. Um, but yeah, I've met, I've met some incredibly inspiring people, you know, in my career, but especially in the last two years, people who care about this, this project. And, you know, but honestly, I think that the people who most inspired me in my life are my parents. Uh, because, you know, my, my dad's an engineer like me, he's a problem solver. My mom is a social worker, but what they have in common really is their ability to say, you know, don't wait for your ship to come in, go out, go swim out and get it. You know, if you see a problem, go tackle it. You know, don't, don't, um, worry about your, 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 um, you know, things that might slow you down or the speed bumps, you know, really trust in your abilities, work hard, take risks. If you see a problem go tackle it and solve that problem. So I think that they've been really the most inspiration in my life because they've been hugely supportive my entire career. I think that's about 50% of the people we interview, they say their parents are their inspiration. So as parents, there's no pressure. You mentioned earlier you have three kids, so no, no pressure there at all. You're going to be yeah. the inspiration for, you know, three humans in the future. I know. <laughs> I would say my kids, but they're teenagers. They're not quite inspirational yet, but um, yeah. Oh, that's that's true. Sometimes it doesn't kick in until you're in your 20s or 30s. Right, but, right. Uh, <laughs> <they're good. laughs> um, so last question we always like to ask people, we feel it's a little window into people's soul. And uh, as an engineer, I'm going to be interested because we always think that engineers are very structured. So um, how do you like your eggs? So we, we always ask people this, their preferred cooking methods, scrambled, poached, sunny side up. Uh, how do you like your eggs if you're doing them just the way you like them? Definitely scrambled. You got to mix it up. You got to mix it up. All right. <laughs> that's my that, that sounds like as a, as a polymer engineer, maybe that's the one exception to the engineer keeping things organized. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, in the startup world, it's all about mixing it up and really being brave and going out there and, and taking risks and getting the job done. Yeah, no, definitely true. Well, it's, I think, uh, great to talk to people that are taking on the plastics challenge. We're hearing a lot about it and a lot of it is negative. So it's great to hear there's some hope on the horizon and also, uh, that, you know, through some smart engineering, we can maybe create plastic that isn't around for uh, 50 years. Cause that bread bag was great, but I don't really want to be looking at it, uh, in, you know, 2050. Yeah. Um, if people want more information, uh, we will link to the website on our podcast post. Um, but they can also check you out uh, if, the, if you Google Radical Plastics, you can find yep. these guys online and see what you're up to. So uh, it was great talking to you today, Kristen. And uh, we need more people out there tackling the plastics problem. Although it's not really a problem. I think it's just we need to use it in a slightly different way. Because um, people yeah. demonize plastics, but plastics are really, really useful, as you probably agree. They are. They are. You know, so it's, it's don't necessarily attack plastics attack the plastics pollution problem because we can reduce, reuse, recycle, and redesign these materials so that we can enjoy their many properties, you know, without polluting the planet. We can do it. Yes, exactly. We can use plastic. We just don't have to uh, 
how about the negative consequences of having it kicking around in a hundred years from now? Yep. Thanks very much, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks for being my guest today. And uh, we are back on the Get Better at Garbage podcast bandwagon now. We've got some uh, great guests coming up in the next couple of weeks. So tune in uh, next week and we'll have a fresh episode on deck. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Remember, you can recycle past episodes at www.recycle-smart.com forward slash podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for joining us. And remember to get better at garbage, rock the recycling, and save some serious dough.